You may turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 976. I'm going to show you the same really simple outline. I've added a couple words, so now I'm calling it an adapted outline. But I'm not going to go into as, not bringing as many parts as I did last week since we did it then. But chapter 1 looks something like this. There's a brief introduction in verses 1 and 2. And then Paul launches into his first very lengthy, complex sentence in verses 3 to 14. Where Paul praises God for his pre-planned blessings. It would be like the most glorious diamond you can imagine where you hold it up to the light and it glints and shines in many different ways and there's a whole array of colors because it's not just one thing, it's a multifaceted blessing that stretches back from before the world was ever created and it stretches into the future after this age has ended. Then Paul launches into his second sentence, verses 15 to 23, here he prays we would understand the significance of these blessings. However much you think you understand the blessings, there is no way possible we could fully comprehend all that is included in those blessings. It is a discovery we will continue to make throughout our lifetimes, all that God has done for us in Christ. But that's the prayer in verses 15 to 23. So last week, we looked at verses 15 through the first part of verse 18. It looks like this. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. So we spent uh, last week's teaching unpacking or examining different aspects of those few verses. I'll just give you the brief summary and review without all of the added detail. If it seems like something's missing, you can always go back to the audio and re-listen to what we did last week. But one of the things I drew your attention to is the connection between their faith and their love. Faith in the Lord Jesus love toward the people, the other saints, brothers and sisters in Christ. It is impossible not to have that connection. You tell me you love God or you have faith in Christ, but you don't love your brother, the Bible says that's not possible. It is impossible to have faith in Christ and not love people Christ has redeemed. It is impossible to have faith in Christ and not love the church. It's impossible. You, can't, you may love your idea of God or Christ, but there's a necessary connection between faith in Christ and love for the church. And Paul brings that out. The second thing I want to mention is, is Paul praying. Paul is praying this because what he's desiring is something that Paul can't accomplish on his own at all. Paul's an apostle. We're learning about it in Sunday school, how he uh, was personally taught by the Lord Jesus Christ, resurrected. That's different in some ways. In some ways, it's similar teaching to what the apostles received, the other 12. But in some ways, it's quite different because the other apostles were taught by Jesus mostly when Jesus lived in the, within the limitations of bodily flesh, of humanity. Now, those original 12 also saw Christ resurrected for 40 days. But Paul was exclusively taught by a resurrected, ascended Lord Jesus Christ. And for all of that, 
what Paul desires is something that he cannot make happen in my life. He cannot make it happen in your life. And so he prays. That's why we pray. That's why we always pray. The reason why we have prayer requests is because we're confessing this is a problem I can't handle. I don't understand it. I may, I may not understand the purpose or why it happened. I can't do anything to resolve it. The reason why we ever pray is because we're recognizing our limitations, our humanity. But God can make a difference. He may change circumstances. He may change me. But the prayer is that God would do what only he can do. That's why we pray. So in that prayer, the, what Paul's praying for most of all is that God would give something. That God would give his spirit, whether we talked about last week, whether that's the Holy Spirit he's giving to enlighten the eyes of our heart, or whether he's giving us a spirit of wisdom, little s. Either way, God's got to give something. God has to enlighten the eyes of our hearts, or it doesn't happen. You can go to Bible school, you can go to seminary, you can give however many degrees you want, and you can read all of whoever your favorite is, or listen to all of their sermons. It won't help you in your knowledge of God, apart from God enlightening the eyes of your heart. And when we talked about knowledge last week, I belabored the point, or spent some time on the point, that knowledge isn't knowledge to pass an entrance examined in the kingdom of heaven, though it does contain facts. It does contain bits of information. It is, they are true things that we learn, but it's an engaging knowledge. It's knowledge that makes a difference. It's knowledge that cultivates a relationship and a walk with God by Christ and a desire to live holy because the one who called you is holy. It's an engaging knowledge. If all it is is knowledge to no good end, it's not even knowledge according to Scripture. It's knowledge to no good end. So that's Paul's prayer for these individuals. Now what we're going to see is further purpose as to why Paul is praying this. What happens when the eyes of your hearts are enlightened? What happens when our knowledge of him is increased and we're engaging more and more with the God who created the heavens and the earth, the Lord of the floods, the Lord who all the other little gods of the world are called to bow down and worship and to recognize his sovereignty and his authority. It looks like this. Having the, uh, the first part of verse 18, we've already seen, now I want to finish the verse. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know, it's again, it's this engaging knowledge, uh, a cultivating knowledge, you're going to know three things. You're going to know what is the hope to which he's called you. You're going to know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And you're going to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power Toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. Three what's. Charles Spurgeon, bad we don't have him around that we could hear the sermon, but he preached a sermon on the three what's. And the three what's are from this passage. Three things that are cultivated in a believer's life by our knowledge of him when he enlightens the eyes of our hearts by, by a spirit of knowledge or a spirit of revelation or the Holy Spirit, however you want to look at that. But three changes that take place are all affected in those, in those few verses. Uh, and by the way, he's not praying for... Well, no, let me, let me move forward and then I'll back to that. Three things that 
we need to know, I could pick out hope, riches, and greatness. He wants us to know something about our hope. He wants us to know something about our riches and something about greatness. Now, if I pick out a secondary word that that explains those first three words that are highlighted in yellow, it would look like this. The hope has something to do with the calling. The riches has something to do with an inheritance. And the greatness, in this case, has something to do with power. Now, what I wanted to say a moment ago is he's not praying that we would receive a calling. He's not praying that we would gain a hope. He's not praying that we would receive. Remember, one day you will receive riches. One day you will have an inheritance. One day you will will experience power. He's saying that you would recognize it now for what it already is. There's a big difference. There's entire denominations built on not understanding that. And they're always seeking something more than what God has already done in Christ. We're celebrating the Lord's Supper. We're remembering what he's already done. We just don't fully understand or appreciate it. That's why Paul prays. It's the hope we have. What is the hope? What are the riches? What is the immeasurable greatness of his power? Let's look at those one at a time. Number one, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What should we know about the hope to which he has called you? Two words we need to define. Number one is the word hope. The word hope, most of you know, maybe all of you know. Uh, If you've been here any length of time, this is something we've hit on every time the word, most of the time when the word hope comes up in scripture, it refers to an absolute confidence in a certain future. It is not I, I hope something, and it may or may not happen, but it's a, a certain, absolute confidence, but it has to do with something in the future, a certain future, which is kind of interesting, because before we did Ephesians, started Ephesians, we were in Isaiah, but before we were in Isaiah, the book that we did in the New Testament was the book of James. And in the book of James, what we discovered, I can't remember now if it was, I think it's the end of chapter 4, but I could be wrong, In chapter 4 it says, don't go saying that you're going to do such and such a thing in such and such a place. You're going to buy or you're going to sell. You don't know what you're going to do. You have no control over tomorrow. Don't be so certain you've got the rest of this day planned out. Don't be so certain you know what you're going to do next week or where you're going to be next month. Don't be so sure that you think you know. You have no control over those things. That's the warning in James. But here, Paul talks about an absolute confidence in a certain future. And the reason why it is an absolute confidence in an absolutely certain future is because it doesn't depend on me. It depends on what God has done. The confidence, the certainty, all rests in God's blessings, which go back to verses 3 to 14. It's because of who God is. It's because of his character. It's because of his promise. It's because of his words. That's where the certainty comes from. Second word is the word called. This word called in Scripture has the definition of a legal summons an appointment or an invitation. Uh, The context 
usually is very easy to, to figure out which of those three meanings is the one intended. I would say the one that's most often used is the idea of a summons. Uh, we have a, a hope of something we have been summoned to. We have a confidence in something that we have been summoned to. Let me, uh, we're going to spend a lot of time on the first one, of the first of the three what's. We're going to spend far less time on the next two. Let's look, look at some examples and illustrations. In your Bibles, uh, I don't really have a page number for this because you're in Ephesians. All you have to do is go back a page or two in your, a couple pages in your Bible. Go back to Galatians chapter 1. And it's kind of curious that we actually read part of this in Sunday school as well. But in Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 to 16, this is Paul's testimony. Uh, Paul recounting his conversion experience. And it reads like this. Galatians 1, verse 11. Chapter 1, verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the tradition of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I was called by his grace. That wasn't an invitation to participate in the gospel. That wasn't an open invitation to be an apostle. It was a summons. Paul was summoned on the Damascus Road. He was struck down on the Damascus Road. He was enlisted into the kingdom of God. Now, clearly, he expressed faith in that. Clearly, he recognized Christ as Lord and Savior. But it was a summons he received on that road. So, from that passage in Galatians chapter 1, I could ask the question, what's the hope to which he's called? He was called by grace, called by the Lord Jesus Christ. What's the hope? In Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 to 16, I, I don't think Paul describes it there. But Paul describes it many, many times in the letters that he writes, the hope that he has, what he was called to, that to which he is certain of. And the phrases I will give you, and I could give you all any number of passages to back this up. Feel free to ask if uh, you're skeptical. Paul has the hope of a resurrection. Paul has the hope of eternal life. Paul has the hope of glory. Paul has the hope of salvation. And by salvation, I put in parentheses, completed salvation. Because salvation in the Bible is, it's a specific incident that occurs when you are born into the kingdom of God by God's spirit. It's a, it's a, it's a conversion of the heart. That's salvation. But salvation is also a work in progress. It's the sanctification of salvation, where we are being made like the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a process. And one day it'll be a completion. It'll all be done. And the very vestiges of sin will be completely removed. There will be no possibility of being tempted or falling into sin, because all remnants of sin will be removed. So he has the hope, not of initial salvation, that already took place. He has the hope of completed salvation. That's the hope to which he is called. So that Paul lives his life in light of that hope. Paul 
isn't living for how many years can I live and where am I going to retire so that I can have a nice, comfortable life and spend, spend the rest of my life in my case, bicycling, you know, fishing, watching TV. That's not his hope. Paul's hope is in the kingdom of God. It's in resurrection. It's in eternal life. It's in completed salvation. I love the quote that once in a while you see it on uh, Facebook or wherever, sometimes on social media, John MacArthur, a quote by him, that what does he look forward to most about, about heaven, about the kingdom of heaven? You know, and John MacArthur has been at his church, pastored a Grace Community Church for 50-some years. He's like, you know, what do I hope most of all? I'm hoping most of no more sinning. That's what I hope for. He's not hoping for, I can't wait to see streets of gold. I can't wait to see, you know, gates that are unimaginable. I can't wait to see the king, you know, heavenly Jerusalem. What he hopes for most of all is no more sin. No more sin. That's Paul's hope. Completed salvation. Eternal life. Glory. Resurrection. That's the hope. There's one more passage that I want to to use Paul as an example of. Philippians. So you were in Galatians, the book before Ephesians. Now go to Ephesians, or Philippians, the book after Ephesians, Philippians chapter 3, these are oftentimes well-known verses for good reason. Philippians chapter 3, the hope becomes very clear in Paul's life. Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, chapter 3, verse 7, but whatever gain I had, whatever I thought was important before that dramatic conversion, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness, that depend, uh, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What is the hope to which Paul is called? Resurrection. Righteousness, not my own. Resurrection and righteousness, all in Christ. That's his hope. That's the basis on which he builds his life. That's the basis on which he he endures all the... That's why he can say, I'm content in every situation. Because my hope isn't in what the world can give. It's not even what I can think I can provide for myself. My hope is what, what Christ has, what Christ has given me. Righteousness, the promise of resurrection. Second example, which we're not going to spend time to look at because I'm going to be out of time, but the Corinthian church is a good example of a calling and a hope. And oftentimes, I'll at least read one of the verses to you. Oftentimes in Scripture, when it uses the word, it calls believers, the, you know, you're called. In the way it's actually written is with a definite article. So, in other words, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 reads this way. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. It goes on to say, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, to those who are called, Christ isn't foolishness, 
He's wisdom. He's righteousness. But it doesn't just say, Paul didn't just say to those who are called, it's but to those who are the called. If you're a believer, you are among the called, the called out ones. God has called you out from a kingdom of darkness and placed you in the kingdom of the son of his own love. He's placed you in the kingdom of light. He's, you are the called out ones. It's usually the called, not just called as a verb. It's actually called as a noun. A second passage which would be similar, and we don't have a lot of time to spend. Well, actually, this one is shorter. Let's turn in your, if you're using a pew Bible, turn to 944. And most people probably, hopefully everybody knows Romans 8.28. So this is a familiar passage. And you have the same idea of calling in Romans 8, 28 to 31. It reads like this. And we know, there's that knowledge again, this engaging knowledge, this cultivating knowledge, knowledge that makes a difference in my life. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Again, there's a definite article. It should read, for those who are the called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, there we do have a verb, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's the hope of the calling. If you're a believer, if you're the called, what is your hope? What is your certainty? What are you certain of in the future? That God is going to finish this all up by being glorified. He, he foreknew, he predestined, he called, he was a sanctified, the next one. No, justified, and he glorified. When, we, when I taught Romans a good number of years ago now, I'd love to do Romans again, among many other books I'd love to do again. But, but uh, when I taught Romans way back in the day, looking back at my notes, I said, you know, that sequence of what God does is similar, not unlike what we found in Ephesians, a multifaceted blessing. In, Ephesians, or in uh, Romans, you've got foreknowing, predestinating, calling, justifying, and glorifying. I said, that, that isn't something that happened like in the book of Judges with Gideon. Gideon was one of the judges that the Lord raised up to, re to rescue his people. And Gideon started with, I don't know, was it 30,000 people? And the Lord said, that's too many. And so it, it got whittled down to 3,000 people. And the Lord said, no, that's still too many. And so based on, on how they drank water out of a brook or a pond or whatever it was, it got down to 300 people. And the Lord's like, that's how many I want. So he went from 30,000 to 300. In this passage in Romans 8, you're not starting off with this great big number, but by the time you get all the way down to glorification, the number's gotten a lot smaller because a lot of people fell off the, off the wagon. The number God starts with, those whom he foreknew he also predestined, is the exact same number, not less one, that gets glorified in the end. And that's why Paul can say, I've got this hope, this certainty that what God has started, he's going to see through to completion. God didn't start out with 
this big number and say, oh, there's not room enough in the kingdom of heaven for all these people. We're going to have to, you know, introduce a new requirement so that we can get the number down. It's the same number from start to finish. God completes what he starts. That's where the hope comes from. All right. Abraham's call. We can talk about that just briefly. In Genesis, it's not called the call of Abraham, but it's generally, in my Bible, the little head, headline, which isn't part of Scripture, but it says this is the call of Abraham. And God called Abraham out from a, a certain place and said, I'm going to take you to a land you know not where. I'm going to take you there. And then a little bit later, a couple chapters later, God tell, the Lord tells Abraham, look, see if I get my directions right. Look north, south, east, and west, because all the land that you see is land I'm going to give you and your descendants. And Abraham never owned more than a burial plot his entire life. And Abraham lived in a tent his entire life. How would you like to live in a tent your entire life? Oh, yeah, he had lots of animals, so that means that stunk and he lived in a tent. (laughs) But he, he never received... In his lifetime, all that was promised him. Abraham was also told, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Hebrews 11 says, Abraham lived without ever seeing all that brought to fruition. But it didn't change his hope. He still lived in light of that promise. He's still waiting for the fulfillment of that promise. For all that was promised him, all the nations of the earth are being blessed, but not to their culminating final resolution, how that transpires. That will take place when Christ comes back in power and glory. So you put those two passages together, which I really don't have time to spend, have enough time to spend on, but it's absolutely fascinating that Abraham would be willing, I mean, I'm amazed by, you know, when pilgrims came to America and they left their families in Europe to get on a little wooden matchbook-sized boat to come to this new land, And it's not like they're texting and calling and even telegraphing back back home. That's unimaginable to me, what people were thinking to actually do that. Abram leaves his family in a culture when family really was very important. He leaves his family. He's not even sure where he's going. And he never stops living in a tent. And he still goes because of the hope of the promise of God. Not hope in what he's going to do or fulfill, but the hope in the promise of God. So out of this, we have a very important lesson. The lesson would be this. Abraham did not know where he was going, but he knew who he was leading. He didn't know where he was going. He didn't need to know. He knew who was leading. And when God gives his word, he doesn't go back. As I go through life, as I push through life, If I depend on myself, I'm depending on somebody who really can't control much of anything, let alone my own self, my own thoughts, my own motivations, my own feelings. I can't control myself, let alone my circumstances. Or I can trust Christ who leads in all circumstances. And I can learn to be content if I know who's leading. So out of that lesson comes a principle. The principle would be this. Faith recognizes that life is a pilgrimage whose path cannot be foreseen. Faith is recognizing, I don't have control over this, but because I know who's leading, 
I don't have to have control, and I don't have to understand. I know what God has promised. I know how he's leading. I know what he wants me to do. And so I will walk in those paths, knowing what he wants me to do. Now, in Scripture, as Christians, and in the church, it's generally pretty easy to know what he's promised in the future. Probably nobody here is surprised for me to say, we've been promised entrance and citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. That's not, that's not like, I've never heard that before. You've probably heard that. But it, just because you know it doesn't mean you're engaging with it. It doesn't mean that I'm necessarily living my life as if I really don't belong here because I've got citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. That's real knowledge. So I know what's promised positively, but on the flip side, I could say, what has God called me or what has he called you away from? Because if God has promised this thing in the future that's absolutely certain, if it's something he's promised us to, he's also called us out of something. He called Abram to leave out from his family, out from his homeland, and travel hundreds of miles because of a promise. I rather suspect anyone who has ever received the promise of God and is participating in the promise of God has also been called out of something. So my question for me, for you, what have you been called out of? At the very least, you've been called out of trusting in yourself and leaning upon your own understanding. At the very least. It may mean you've been called out of, you know what, give up your idea of what a career looks like or uh, a satisfactory level of income looks like or satisfactory savings or what retirement looks like or what enjoy. What has God called me away from in order to go to what he's promised? And it can look different for different people. But I think God calls us out of something to call us to something. Let's go to the next two very quickly. So we've got the hope to which he's called us. Then we've got what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Two words, riches and inheritance. We spent a little bit of time on this back in the first sentence, especially verses 11 to 14. Commentators are still divided, although the majority of commentators would say the riches of his glorious inheritance is talking about we are God's inheritance. It's not talking about the inheritance we receive from God, though we do. It's talking about, can you imagine God who who spoke all things into existence that God chose to make you his inheritance? That should make you feel special. That should make you be overwhelmed by, it could only be by grace. Because I know my heart. I know my thoughts. I'm God's inheritance. We are God's inheritance. That should change the way we think and live. Then the last one. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might. You've got greatness. And when we're talking about greatness in this specific context, he actually uses four different Greek words. One translated power, one translated working, one translated great, which is not that word, and one translated might. I think the New International Version, I like it does, I like the way it translates this second uh, two powers better. It translates as, I think, mighty strength. Is that right, Joe? You use NIV? Might, mighty strength. So you've got power, working, mighty strength. In other, wor- in other words, Paul is 
compound, he's picking all these words having to do with strength because he wants you to know the greatness of God. There is no imaginable circumstance in which this plan is going to fail. There is no way God, those whom he has called to himself, are not going to wind up exactly where he knows it's going to wind up. That's why Paul in Romans 8 can say, there's no power in heaven above, no power in earth below, height, depth, nor any other thing could ever separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He's got it all under his control. He is Lord of the flood. He is Lord of heaven and earth. His power, his working, his mighty strength. I know exactly where this is headed because the Lord is God. What are your comments and questions? Lori. I'm saying it's completely different. Because Gideon's number went from big to small. God's number stays completely static. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. It's the same number, not less one. It's not salvation even. It's not even salvation, yeah. So, yeah, so far as salvation goes, that would be the same in Older New Testament. But so far as Gideon and his army, God's like, I don't, I don't want 30,000 because I want, I want you to know Gideon and I want all of Israel to know and I want all of the church to know now this many thousand years later that this is not by, might or your, by your might or your power, it's by my will and strength and, you know, those words, the immeasurable greatness of my power that this deliverance came. If I let you have 30,000, you'll think, wow, we are 30,000 tough individuals. But if you got 300 against this huge, vast army that you can't even number, you're going to know this came from me. Yeah. So next week, hopefully, I will finish up chapter 1. Um, so we, got, we just have 20 to 23, and then I'm gone to the East Coast, so I really need to finish up 20 to 23. So uh, let's stand to be dismissed in prayer.